recording going on your side? It's recording now. We're back with another episode and still temporary stock music as my theme music. But I have a very exciting guest from YouTube fame and from my local camera shop fame, The Camera Store. We have Chris Nichols. Hey, Chris. Hey, thanks so much for having me on here, Tyler. I'm uh, really excited to be on the Manuke podcast. Yeah, this is fantastic. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. I'm getting a more clear idea of where I want this show to go. Mm. I don't th- I don't think you heard the first episodes yet, but what I was talking about in them is like I don't really know what I want this to be yet. I just know I need to have like a looser form conversation with people I respect, people that I get excited about their work. And my idea is starting to form around that I just want this to be a place for creators, you know, people that like right. to make stuff. And you make stuff. I do. Yeah. I mean, of course, as you know, the, the YouTube show is doing really well for us. And you've been a special guest on our show quite a few times now. It's a lot of workshops that we're doing in the store now. There's a lot of new initiatives. We've got beers and cameras going. We're trying to build more of that photographic community in Calgary. And that's taking off as well. So uh, despite the industry decline, it's actually a really exciting time to be a photographer. Yeah. And I think that the whole community aspect of it, the educational part of it, like, it's a changing industry. It's hard for manufacturers that were used to it being a certain way and are mm-hmm. trying to find ways to adapt. But for people taking photos, I mean, it's just getting better and better. Like the only negatives, when I, especially when I look at cameras that have been released recently, the worst part is that they're so good that it makes it very hard to choose <laughs> from them. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's funny. I have a, I have a kind of different attitude because when we we're first uh, working at the store. I mean, I started there 14 years ago, right at the start of digital and seeing how that industry grew. It was always this this space race, you know, of, of trying to get more megapixels and trying to get better technology. And then it was, OK, you need more dynamic range and we 4K, we've got all these features. And actually, I find it quite relieving now, maybe from the point of view of a salesperson in this industry, <laughs> that, yeah. uh, you know, that all the cameras are good now. And you know, you can reassure your customers and people starting out like, look, image quality, don't worry about it. Get a camera that really does feel good. Get a camera that you jive with, that you like the look of, you know, that has a kind of feel that works well for you and get away from the numbers and the pixels. And I think a lot of people are finding that refreshing. It's funny almost because it used to be a situation where I would just, people would ask what I think that they should buy. And I'd basically say, what's your budget? And then I'd point to the Canon in that budget range. So that, that was pretty easy for me. Actually, I mean, I was looking at it the other day. I was looking at my, I, th- I think both of our first YouTube posts were like within a month of each other. Yeah. And, and mine was like reviewing the Canon Rebel T2 or something and the uh, 7D and the 5D Mark II maybe. I mean, Mark mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. But Way um, back then, yeah. But, but at that point, that was like a, a pretty safe bet is you could just point somebody like, look, do, does Nikon feel good or does Canon feel good? Yeah. Now choose your price range. It's it's interesting. People people used to come in and that was all you ever heard was, you know, my friend told me, get an Nikon or get a Canon. What should I get? And now we have people coming in, they're saying like, hey, I've also heard about Sony or what about those Fuji cameras? What about those Panasonic cameras? So yeah, it's changed in a very vibrant way. People that are into Sony's now may not remember 
how how dark it was for Sony fans, which <laughs> I wasn't one of them, but I just didn't look at Sony for years. Anytime I did, it was like, okay, this is just strange. Yeah. Making up their own stuff, like the, they're not really following what I expect the industry to do. And uh, but look look at them now. Yeah, they had some teething issues. It took a little bit of time, but uh, they were always dedicated to being an innovator in the industry, and I think that's why they're enjoying so much success. And I feel like. Nikon and Canon as a brand now, although still very strong, are really sticking to the to the tried and true history that's gotten them the success they've had so far. But they're not really making the innovations that maybe a lot of people are looking for nowadays. Or maybe they're just kind of out of touch with how people want to do photography nowadays. I can't tell what it is, but there's some interesting cultural things going on within those companies. And we're we're going to have to see how they shake out. They, you know, they could still turn it around. Absolutely. But they got to do it soon. Um, I don't want to get too specific in cameras yet, though. I want to save yeah, for sure. like, detailed recommendations for the end because I know that's somewhere you've got special knowledge over me. I don't have a chance to interact with every camera that gets released. I only really get to know the cameras I own, and you've mm-hmm. got a pretty diverse set of knowledge there. So at the end, We'll we'll dive into some specific recommendations, but first let's talk about what the process is for making these decisions. Like, yeah. we're talking to people that may not have their first, uh, you know, quote unquote real camera. Like, m- most people are playing around with a cell phone at the very least. So let's start there and kind of grow with them during this conversation. So first of all, at this stage in 2018. What is it that will motivate somebody to move from a cell phone to a bigger camera? Like we know that point and shoots, Mm. that market's been shrinking. So what usually is it that when somebody walks into the store, what are they looking for that their phone can't do? That's a good question. You know, uh, the industry has been in decline, of course. We talk about how point and shoot cameras are disappearing and that is straight out because of the cell phone. Um, But at the same time, I I wonder if it really is people using their phones and wanting to move over to bigger cameras. I think what we've kind of found is that, uh, you know, people are doing this thing where they're either they're either going to be cell phone people who just use point and shoot cameras or they've already decided they want to do something more creative. And so we feel like all the customers that come into the store nowadays they're all enthusiastic. You know, we used to have to get everybody, people who were starting out just wanting to take snapshots and people who want to be serious. And now we just get people that want to be creative and serious. So I don't know how many of the cell phone uh, users we're going to get back, but I think the key things to look for, you know, when someone comes in and they say, what camera should I buy? It really does come down still to what kind of photography you do. You know, are you a wildlife uh, person? Are you a sports person? Or are you a landscape person or a portrait person or so on and so forth? Well, and I think you got something there about like, even though the industry of making cameras might be in decline, the industry of looking at photos is exploding and has yeah. been for, you know, a decade, obviously. Like how how many amazing images do we look at every day? Like going through my Instagram feed, I can't believe how much stuff is being put out by non-professionals or mm-hmm. people that don't consider themselves professionals, but are just incredible at taking photos because they figured it out. You know, they just put the work in, uh, they learned how to manipulate their camera and process photos afterwards and post and just do all the things that it takes to make photos really look absolutely amazing. And, um, so now I think that's part of why people are so excited is there's more opportunity too. like, if you take a great photo, it can go further. You know, you're not just hoping that national geographic stumbles across it and hires you. (laughs) 
uh, you know, you can have it exposed to hundreds or thousands of people just by posting it. So, you know, I, th- I think that's, ex- it's exciting for me. It's exciting for every single person I know, I think. So, yeah, it, it is incredibly exciting. And, you know, if, if anything, if being in the industry, as long as I have has taught me anything, it's that if you kind of take an attitude of, Photography is one thing and it should stay that way for the rest of its life and it should never change and anything else is is a travesty. You're really going to miss out on a lot of the creative potential. And I know that now people are getting into computational photography and doing filtration on your phones or cameras and 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 doing a lot of stuff in post. And, and I know the old timers are, you know, or the really stubborn photographers just say, oh, that's not art. That's not right. We shouldn't be doing that. But really, you got to get with the new trends, see what's going on and dive in. I mean, that's the way photography's always been. It was that way when we went from large format to medium format to 35 mil. And it was definitely that way when we went from film to digital. And now it's it's that way going from digital to phones and digital to whatever the future is. Cameras that have, uh, you know, uh, choose your own depth of field at the end of them Mm -hmm. and, you know, do whatever color you want. I mean, this is kind of the future and I think we should embrace it. The thing that I love about Instagram and all these social media sharing platforms for photography now is so few people care or even ask what camera you're using anymore. Totally. Yeah. You know, it used to be this thing like, oh, you you know, you take this pro photo. You're like, oh, what lens did you use? What camera did you use? You know, was it Canon? Was it an icon? Now people are just like, that's an amazing photo that makes, you know, that makes me feel good. Or that reminds me of a time and place that I've been. And they're not really focusing on the gear anymore. And actually, I think in a lot of ways, that's really quite a beautiful thing. Definitely. I think a lot of people have realized that they don't need to. And and it's funny, I phrased this question as, you know, what can a cell phone not do that would excite you to upgrade your camera? At the same time now, cell phones are doing a lot of things that bigger cameras can't do yet. I was doing that uh, YouTube comparison the other day of a Hasselblad to a Google Pixel 2. So, you know, basically computational photography versus pure hardware mm-hmm. performance. And these both have their place. I This is actually something I want to kind of clear up is people were making a lot of jokes like, oh, it's like comparing a Ferrari to a Prius. And you know what? <laughs> it kind of is. And that's not yeah. an unreasonable thing to compare. If you want to learn more about how, like for me, I, I want to learn more about what the difference is about a computer taking a series of images and getting the maximum quality out of them possible and a giant sensor. Like it is useful to have that information. Why, there's mm-hmm. no reason to avoid knowing how these things kind of work differently because it it ends up with really different results and it makes you realize when should I reach for which camera. There's a lot of situations Absolutely. that it makes sense to still use a cell phone. But let's, let's talk about some of those details. Like a, a great one that's always been there is depth of field. Obviously that's right. changing a little bit, but I think still like really blurry backgrounds is something that people are still buying a bigger camera for. Is that still the case? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that we still want to look at, and I think something that's still going to be very important in the foreseeable future is different lenses, whether that be a zoom or whether that be interchangeable prime lenses. It's still something that phones can't quite touch. You know, they're getting there, they're trying, but they can't quite touch that. So I think for the foreseeable future, there's still a real beauty and joy in using different lenses. And so for me, a big part of why I'd move up uh, as a beginner into a serious camera that we're talking about today, it would be to get those different lens choices. Um, getting things like wide aperture lenses for thin depth of field when you want to isolate that subject and make the background soft. 
But also, I still really like to always instruct my students on the beauty of perspective when it comes to lenses and that relationship between your foreground and your background. You know, wide angle lenses push that background far away and telephoto lenses bring that background really close. And a lot of people still aren't aware of that. And, you know, whenever I show students that whole thing, there's like this aha moment and they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe I was just taking that for granted for so long. Like there's actually a creative thing there. So the love of lenses is still something I think is going to draw a lot of enthusiasts into the market. And that's a big potential disadvantage to only shooting with your phone is that you don't start to learn what those differences are. You just assume like this is just what a photo looks like, but you don't realize like, oh, I'm always shooting around 30 millimeters or whatever exactly your phone is. You start to take it for granted. You don't really see how it can be different. And even the way that people have approached the, you know, quote unquote, zoom lenses on iPhones, people refer to it as a zoom lens as if the only thing it can do is get closer. Right. But it is actually a 50 millimeter lens equivalent. You know, it's, it's actually a different lens. And the most interesting things to look at there is that it gets a lot closer to becoming a portrait lens and it minimizes Mm -hmm. some of the distortion on the sides. And like, you can, play with those things on your phone, assuming you have, you know, say a a plus iPhone or a Galaxy Note 8 or anything that has a a longer lens on it, you can start playing with that idea of different lenses and not just thinking about it as a way to zoom in closer to your subject. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I think there's always going to be that love affair, even if we do get into these filters and this technology in the future where a lot of this gets done afterwards you still have to learn it and there's still going to be this love affair with doing it in in a classic old-fashioned way well what will be old-fashioned and the other thing too is there are certain kinds of photography where you are going to need extreme lenses and that's not something i think phones are ever going to touch for a while so Mm -hmm. you know ultra wide angles if you want to do creative photography or real estate long telephotos if you want to get into wildlife and sports photography. And a lot of our customers, a lot of our photographers are looking to do that, especially where we live here in Alberta, right? I mean, we have nothing but huge panoramic landscapes and gorgeous wildlife. So I think that still bodes very well for our market. And that brings a lot of people in. And I think even another confusion, again, this is something I saw a lot in the comments talking about comparing a big expensive Hasselblad to a small cell phone was a lot of people saying, why would you ever spend that much money, like thousands and thousands of dollars on a, on a big camera and not understanding what professional equipment is all about? Like why would uh, a, you know, a carpenter spend $5,000 on his saw when he could go and buy a $30 hacksaw at Home Depot? You know, there's a reason to buy the good version Mm. of what you need when it's the tool that you make a living off of. Like, of course you're, you're going to need more control over what you do. You need more reliability. You need predictability. There are things that start to really matter. And uh, if you decide to make this a job at some point, then you will instantly, (laughs) those things become very obvious. And they may not be obvious until you're doing it as a job. Absolutely. And and, and I think, you know, I don't think people out there have to feel like, oh, one day I'm going to have to get a $50,000 Hasselblad, you know, like not at all. It's one of those things where as you start to really get into photography and you start to be more creative with it and you start to really appreciate the art form and aesthetic behind it, you start to see these different cameras not as qualitative or or anything like that. You know, it's not like Hasselblad's really take that much better a photo. It's it's just about the right tool for the right job and what you want to do. Um, at the same time, though, I think what's really exciting is how we're seeing so many cameras that are very powerful become very small and compact and portable. 
you know, talking about things like A7R Mark III's from Sony and, you know, Fuji, the X-T2 and the X-T20. And, and generally speaking, the whole mirrorless market today, that's a really exciting thing. And I'm surprised by how many uh, what I would have normally described as old school photographers who've been in the, the industry forever are now saying, Chris, I don't want to carry an SLR around. I did it for 40 years. I'm done with that. I want a tiny Sony. I know how to do photography. This will do just as well as my big camera. And they're really jumping on board on that. So let's talk a bit about camera classes, um, not broken down by cost exactly, but what mm -hmm. the differences are in you know performance and size and what are you looking at as you choose your camera? Kind of what are the different genres to to choose mm. from these days and why do you go for one or the other? So, you know, starting with compacts like a built-in uh, zoom lens, it's a similar size to your phone, a little bit bigger for larger optics. Is there still a reason to go for a compact camera like that? For sure. Yeah, it's a good place to start. You know, when people come in the store, they're they're often asking, like, where do I want to begin there? The classic compact camera, its main strength is going to be portability and it's going to be huge zoom range. One of the benefits of going with a really small sensor, a really tiny uh, chip that's actually making the photo in your camera uh, is that you can put a very big zoom range in front of it, but the camera can still be small. Now, that market has has diminished. That's kind of where the phone's really eaten away at the market. But you've got tiny pocket sized cameras that can give you zoom ranges that could easily handle animals on safari. You know, so right. I think if somebody just wants a good quality photo, but ease of use and they want to have a really flexible zoom range, getting a compact point and shoot is a great place to start. And those cameras are only like three hundred to four hundred dollars nowadays. The part of the industry that I'm finding really exciting now is the one inch sensor, this sort of uh, bigger than compact size sensor. This sensor is big enough that you get excellent low light quality. You get, generally speaking, 20 megapixels, which is tons nowadays. But these one inch sensor cameras can still be pocket sized. And there's quite a, a variety of very interesting lenses, whether they be uh, wide aperture, bright lenses for low light shooting, or some have substantially long zoom ranges, like 10 times, you can get a pocket camera with a one inch sensor now that really gives you manual control, creative photography, and still has the convenience of a small, compact, all-in-one camera without extra lenses that you'd ever have to worry about. And speaking of sensor size, it actually makes me think of one uh, reverse advantage, going back to why cell phones can be more useful. Sometimes sure. I'll pull out a cell phone instead because of the increased depth of field. There's There's been lots of times where I'm posting a photo and I just, I especially think about a photo from the top down, uh, like food. Food photo is a great example of when a cell phone can have a big advantage mm. because if there's a hand reaching across, do you want that hand in or out of focus? And you can get all of it in focus every single time with a cell phone. But if you have a full frame sensor, first of all, it's a lot heavier to hold that over a table, but also it can create the challenge of you need to now choose your point of focus because something mm -hmm. will be blurry. And sometimes it's not what you expected was going to be blurry. So depth of field can be a burden and a curse. And I've, I've actually... Wait, no, burden and curse are the same thing. <laughs> or, or a boon. <laughs> it could be a, a burden, a boon, or a curse. <laughs> yeah, it can be anything you wanted to. Well, and going back in time as well, I mean, I remember 
reading about that uh, when medium format and larger formats were the standard, it was ju- it was very desirable to find ways to increase the depth of field, increase how much was in focus because mm-hmm. it was such a challenge to have so little in focus. And, and it wasn't desirable until basically fashion photography in the 80s, I think, is when uh, exactly. low depth of field became something people wanted. And, you know, going back to our, our whole talk about post and editing and stuff, I mean, arguably you could say it's easier to start with more depth of field and make it look like less depth of field than it is to start with in depth of field and put things into focus. It just doesn't work. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of flexibility in these small platforms and uh, one inch cameras. I think that's a great compromise. If you want the soft background look that your phone has a hard time doing, you can do that on here. But at the same time, if you want to get more depth of field, that's quite easy to do as well. So those one inch cameras really they kind of hit a sweet spot for a lot of people who want to start in photography, get a bit more enthusiastic, but aren't ready to dive into the, you know, the whole full system camera. All right. Well, let's talk about those systems a bit now. Uh, what's the yeah. beginning of that? I mean, micro four thirds is really where you get started with that kind of thing, right? Yeah. I, I Micro four thirds is small system that uh, Panasonic and Olympus have embraced and have stuck with since the beginning. It's definitely a larger sensor than one inch. And uh, I actually use Panasonic cameras myself. I love them. You know, there's there's a lot of talk on, you know, a lot, a lot of photographers like to really compare size and make, you know, mine's bigger than yours and that's better and all that kind of stuff. And and the micro four third sensor, now that we've been talking about this already in the podcast, Tyler, it's, it's, it's not so much about bigger is better as we've been talking about. It's about what works best for you, the depth of field you're trying to get and Micro Four Thirds, I love the system. You've got lots of interchangeable lenses. And unlike the bigger systems from Canon and Nikon and Sony and Fuji, Micro Four Thirds lenses are physically also very small. That's a huge thing that I'm starting to really appreciate. Even in uh, it's something I've been talking about on both my podcasts quite a bit lately is the struggle of 2018 deciding what camera system to commit to. But for me, that's between Sony and Canon and, and the advantages of each. The challenge of carrying around all the Canon glass, which are all bigger. You know, I don't have, oh, yeah. I have very few small Canon lenses and they aren't all that versatile. Um, Whereas I I find Sony, because of the mirrorlessness, have just made more small options. There's a a lot of things out there that you can have the whole package stay pretty compact. Not not if you want the the great zooms, like the G-series stuff is pretty big, but... um, you know, it, it really matters how big your camera is, and especially to non-professionals. Oh, yeah. You said it right there, the, the complete package. It's not just the body and the lenses, but if your camera and lenses are smaller, that also means your bag is smaller. That also means that your tripod can be smaller. Your filters can be smaller. Um, you know, quite a few years ago, I took the Panasonic to Hawaii, and it was an amazing trip, not just because it was a fantastic trip on its own, but bringing the Panasonic camera, it was so liberating to be able to go on hikes through rainforests without carrying a big tripod and walk around Honolulu with just a little camera in a little pouch on your belt and still have all the stuff in there. Um, it, it honestly, it made it more fun. And, and that's kind of part of the whole point of doing photography. It made it fun. I never felt like I was undergunned. I still had all my creative control and I could change depth of field and shutter speeds and use filters. And I just found that experience really liberating. And I think after that, I was kind of a changed man. You know, I haven't really touched uh, my Nikon SLR since very often at all. Yeah, yeah. It's it's pretty much just the micro four thirds when I'm doing my own stuff. 
Well, it's funny you mentioned the ability to use super zooms on point and shoots, and that reminds me of the days of camcorders where you'd get like 200 times zoom, or I, I don't remember, but I just, oh, I just still know that. Stuff, it, yeah. It, yeah, if if I look at a, a Canon camcorder that's $1,000, it has a further zoom range than any lens I own for my big, bigger system. You know, like it, it's incredible what you can do with the small sensor. Yeah. And it's stabilized. I loved it. And, and I think now, you know, one thing we have to appreciate in the phones of, you know, we, we always say, oh, the phones are wrecking our industry, but I have the complete exact opposite reaction because the science and technology that's going into miniaturizing these phones and making the sensors better in these phones, even though they're tiny, those same technological advances are making um, their way up the entire line. And so we're finding that a lot of micro four thirds cameras are way better than they used to be. We're finding that a lot of APS-C size sensors are way better than they used to be. And I'm starting to almost feel like, do we really need full frame? I mean, there are, there's going to be... Uh, well, I do. You do, yeah. <laughs> there's there's going to be artistic benefits to it, but I feel like the image quality that used to be such a downside in small cameras, things like low light performance and dynamic range, those things are starting to get rectified. So now you can take a small camera and you can still take really high quality photos. And that's a really interesting part about this is you have to have this conversation every year because we're in a new situation every year. It, you can't yeah. just learn these things and then stick with it. The rules of thumb I had two years ago are quickly going out the window. We just had that GH5S announced from Panasonic where a micro yeah. four thirds sensor can do extremely high quality, low light imagery. Um, not something I expected to see this year, but we keep getting surprised by what they can put into such a small package. Exactly. I mean, you remember, well, I mean, you're guilty of this because you love your full frame, but you know, you I remember do. a time where if you were going to get into the industry, you basically had to get a full frame camera, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. And that's just not the case anymore. We've got excellent photographers and videographers out there shooting very professional work, very high end work on compact cameras with smaller sensors. And that's wonderful to see because, you know, like we just talked about with things like Instagram and stuff, nobody cares anymore about what camera you're using. They just want to see what you did creatively. And so I think the whole attitude shifting away from having to have a particular camera, you know, the cachet and having to use, you can only use this camera to do professional work. That's really kind of going away. And that's, that's really liberating for a lot of people. And it's exciting for a lot of people that want to get in and, and, and don't have to feel like they have to throw down three grand to enjoy this game. Well, and if we move up to the next size, which I'd think about a, uh, an APS-C cropped sensor size, yeah. um, I think a, a common misconception there is that it's quite a bit lesser than full frame. Like, But what a lot of people don't realize is that for cinema, like very high-end professional cinema, the movies you go yeah. to, so much of it is shot at that sensor size. Yeah, APS-C almost exactly matches the classic Super 35 uh, format yep. that we always enjoyed professional movies on. So to feel like you can't create the work that you want to with a crop sensor is incorrect. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's yeah. the wrong way to look at it. Like there is more that you can do with full frame. The absolute best dynamic range is better in full frame. And the absolute sure. shallowest depth of field is better in, you know, even large format, like as the format gets bigger, these things, they do move forward. But um, the law of diminishing returns is very, very true. I think this should actually yeah. kind of be a central point of all this too, is that this is just a 
a common thing. I'm not making any of this up. Everybody is aware of this that's ever spent too much money on gear of any kind, that as you spend more money, the bigger jumps in spending to, as you get into it have a smaller return on either image quality or speed or like all the things you're looking to improve. You get smaller incremental improvements as you get towards the top. Like that first 500 or let's say $1,000 that you spend will get you like 80% of everything you ever need. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the next $20,000 is just to fill that final 20% of quality. You have to kind of remember, you know, looking back in the industry, if we think about the the dark ages of digital photography, you know, back 10 years ago where the cameras really left a lot to be desired, full frame wasn't this, this desirable uh, luxury. It was honestly a necessity, but we, the only way we could get acceptable image quality to win over professionals to the digital format was by using these very, very large sensors because back then the small sensors weren't great, but that's not the case anymore. Uh, So yeah, I would encourage anybody that's getting into their first camera, please don't feel like you have to spend a certain amount of money or, or you have to, you know, get what the other people are using. The market's totally changed now. This is this is all about you getting to pick the camera that you feel suits you best now. And like I say to everybody, you're spoiled. I like everybody gets great image quality nowadays. There used to be a time where from just thumbnail size images you could spot a smaller sensor like yes. pretty easily typically. It was it was pretty obvious. And now you just you need to know what to look for. Like you can find it in the depth of field sometimes, but it's it's not that obvious. It's not the image quality that's giving it away at all. I think APS-C size sensors now, that for me is the most exciting market now personally. I think if you get yourself into a Sony or a Fuji mirrorless camera or a Canon or Nikon, more entry level or mid-range SLR, you're getting a lot of bang for your buck at that point. So if somebody wants to be sure that they're getting a camera with a lot of potential, that they're not missing out in any image quality ways, I think that's a great threshold to reach at least. And before we move on to talking about full frame specifically, we should make sure everybody's aware when you're looking at cropped sensor cameras and even calling them cropped is assuming that 35 millimeter is that's the only, that's the true size. Cropped is less, but it's not exactly the case. But the thing to know is that a lens will project a different image on different sensor sizes. So the language of cropped just helps you understand that, but you should Google this and do a little bit of research because it can really help out to see some imagery. This is where I think a podcast can be a little bit lacking, but a 50 millimeter lens being projected like the light that comes through it being projected onto a smaller sensor will just have a different effect and will show less of the available frame right so that 50 millimeter if it's built for a full frame camera you will get 1.6 zoom in on that right so you're going to lose whatever percent of the outsides i don't know is it 40 percent 30 percent something like that you're going to have less of the outside of that image um so the, the way to do that math is always that the equivalent of, let's say, a 50 millimeter on an APS-C camera becomes closer to an 80 millimeter because you need to do one times 1.6. And then you'll find the equivalent between those two. And again, it's sort of it's misleading to think that full frame is the, the truth, because if we just lived in a world where uh, the largest sensor that existed was APS-C, then that would be true. So it's, you know, it's kind of a, 
it's a constructed idea, full frame, crop frame, but um, just you need to try them on. I mean, it's helpful to go into a store and look at the same lens on both cameras to understand here's what is being changed based on my sensor choice. Yeah, you know, I think that 35 millimeter full frame thing is just such a classic standard because 35 millimeter film itself was so popular for so many decades. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Tyler. Nowadays, there's so many lenses out there that are mated in particular for the sensor size that you can buy. I mean, micro four thirds, those lenses are made for micro four thirds. So many APS-C cameras now have lenses made for APS-C and then full frame have their full frame lenses that although it can get confusing when you start to mix and match lenses from one sensor size to another, generally speaking on the market nowadays, anybody getting into a system, they're going to have tons of lenses that they can buy so that they can do the ultra wide stuff, the extreme telephoto stuff, the normal stuff and everywhere in between. So yeah, we don't have to worry so much about um, whether one format or sensor size is going to give us better creative potential. You got tons of choices nowadays. Let's go to talking about full frame. Usually I do say that like eventually if you're advancing in your career, most people are moving eventually towards full frame, uh, you know, as they become a, a full professional, but not everybody. And just if you're wondering what those things might be that would prevent you from ever needing to upgrade all the way to full frame is I would probably say um, if size is really, really important to you, like you just mm -hmm. can't have a large camera for your job, then you may never need full frame. And also right now, image stabilization, the best possible image stabilization is in the smaller sensors. So we're probably not going to touch on video much in this episode. This is mm -hmm. mostly about photography. But so yeah, if you're doing a video, there's some really amazing image stabilization by some of those smaller sensors. Um, so those those could be reasons to, to stick around in that size uh, or just if some mm -hmm. of the specific cameras you like are, are there, also cost. But yeah, like I say, full frame is still where most m most professionals end up eventually because it does still have some real advantages of increased dynamic range. And um, th that may not be obvious just by taking a quick snapshot on two cameras. So let's say you go by the Canon Rebel that's available today for $1,000. I honestly don't remember what the models are <laughs> these days. <'cause> they, <laughs> that's okay. There's so many. Yeah. But um, we take a Rebel and we compare it to a 1D series, uh, you know, the most expensive pro Canon cameras. The image at a glance that's going to come out of it will usually look more or less the same. And in the, your first moment of looking at them, it won't be obvious what the difference is. You'll start to discover that difference as you bring that into your post-processing software and start to make big adjustments. If you need to recover detail from the shadows or you accidentally underexpose the image or overexpose the image and you make those changes and try to kind of rescue things from it, there will be less to rescue from the cheaper cameras. That's when you're going to spot the difference. And it it can be pretty significant. Like The, the newer big sensor cameras are remarkable what's in them the a7r mm. mark three or a7r three the d850 um the 5d mark four all of them have an incredible amount of detail uh that you can really push your images further in the end and and that's part of that dimin diminishing return thing sure the out of camera photo the first camera photo you get from your camera looks great i mean it's most of what you were aiming for. And it's that final being able to push it and fix it and improve it 
that's what comes from these bigger sensors. Yeah, I think, you know, with full frame, I certainly think that the industry is changing. Uh, you know, I don't think full frame sensors are, are ever going to disappear. They're they're still doing very well. But I do think the classic giant SLR, you know, this is the SLR that you would have seen in the magazines shooting sports games and stuff, you know, at the Olympics and stuff. I think that that market's going to start to disappear. Full yeah. frame sensors are going to become very important in the mirrorless market. You know, things like the Sony A7 and A9 series of cameras uh, are just killing it because they're putting full frame sensors into a smaller body. But I do want to say for all the viewers, you know, the listeners, first off, key thing to remember, uh, and we kind of touched on this already, the sensor size is going to determine how big your lenses are. So like you pointed out, Tyler, full frame does mean you can get a smaller body, but it doesn't mean you can get smaller lenses. These lenses are going to be substantial in size. So you do have to keep, keep, keep that in, uh, in mind if that's going to be a concern for your photography. But at the same time, Yes, they do have more dynamic range than the full frame sensors, but I personally think that the small sensors are very close. What's so amazing to me about the full frame sensors like the D850 and the A7R Mark III, which are just killing it right now is the best of the best, is that they give you such amazing low light performance and dynamic range, and they also give you 46 megapixels or 42 and a half megapixels. <laughs> right. yeah. that's, Let's not forget that. Yeah, that's kind of the key. And again, does everybody need that? No. Uh, are 90% are of the people who think they need that actually going to need that? No, probably not. But it has it has the, the file size and the information that um, if a client did come to you and say, hey, we want to go big with this picture. We want to put this on a billboard. We want to print this out on a mural. We want to do this large in, in a subway station or something. Well, that's where that could be a real benefit for sure. Also, as an artist, having more megapixels, it's about having more creative control, having the ability to crop, having the ability to enlarge, uh, just knowing that the details there. So, yeah, I, I think that's what's so exciting about it. Um, but we're seeing those smaller sensors really catch up in terms of low light performance and dynamic range. And I don't want to leave any confusion about what I said with uh, the mirrorless full frame uh, cameras having smaller lenses. So yeah, I mean, what you just said is absolutely right. And that the availability of the smaller lenses on, say, Sony's is a design decision by Sony. It is not inherent to the camera. It's that they uh, occasionally decide, like, look, we need some great uh, options for, that fit the size of this camera. So they intentionally make some of them quite small so that you can have a, a compact system. Um, and, mm -hmm. and Canon could be doing this for their mirror, uh, their DSLR cameras as well. But Sony has just decided to have more of that available, really. Um, and then also, yeah, if we're going to talk about megapixels, which we have to, um, <laughs> just some of the reasons to have larger megapixels, I think, are important to understand. Because I, th I, I think most people, personally, I think most people have it wrong about their desire for megapixels. That, yeah. um, you know, people find it frustrating that, uh, you know, like 40 isn't enough and why isn't it 50? Like why didn't the A7R three get a little bit bigger? Um, or that it's a big disadvantage of the 5D Mark IV because it's only, I forget all these numbers. 30, I'm, I'm yeah, just, it's only yeah, it's 30, like 30 yeah. compared to 40, yeah. Um, th <laughs> that is that is not a problem. Like the, the amount of times that you reach for that extra 40 on my Sony that I use, you know, often enough. I, I do use the Canon more for stills, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I have a 40 megapixel Sony and I have used those 40 megapixels zero times in the few years yeah. that I've owned that camera. I've never, 
ever needed them. And that's usually the argument is like, oh, but you know, what if you need them? And like, (laughs) there was one incident this year that actually, this is exactly the argument is that we were shooting a web campaign that ended up needing a billboard printed from it. And you know, that's what everybody's arguing about. It's like you shoot it just in case, just in case so that you have it. Um, and in this situation, I happened to be shooting medium raw because it was for web and I shoot really high volume. So really often that's what I'm doing. And you know how that photo looked on a billboard coming out of a 30 megapixel camera shooting in a lower raw format? Like it looked mm. great and fine because yeah. the, <laughs> the DPI on a billboard is like... 15 dots per inch or whatever it is, yeah. you know, um, uh, I've seen really great photos come out of older back when I was working at iStock photo, we would see things printed on billboards from rebel cameras all the time. And you would never oh, yeah. know. I mean, it, it really does come down to the print and the printer. I mean, that was, that was the whole reason for the megapixel rush in the first place was people were making prints. They want to do gallery stuff and, you know, cameras were lacking when they were down in the six megapixel, eight megapixel, 10 megapixel kind of range. But then it just went out of control. And I think it's just human nature, especially in the tech industry. Numbers, 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 marketing, marketing, marketing. I want, I want, I want. And, you know, you got to really consider how many people are printing anymore. That's that's a sad fact, but it's a fact. It's, it's the way the world is. Um, how many people are looking at photos on Instagram? Yeah. Unbelievable yeah, exactly. amounts. And. And the resolution requirement is absolutely abysmal. You, you don't need anywhere close to anything. <laughs> I mean, a 10-year-old camera would probably look exactly the same. So, yeah, I, you know, megapixels are great. And, and there are professionals that will need that for a certain kind of work. But, yeah, take it with a grain of salt. Don't feel like you have to get 46 megapixels or else don't do photography. It's not like that at all. And, uh, you know, we're, we may even see a lot of cameras like this new Panasonic GH5S, for example, and the Sony A7S Mark II. They've actually chosen to drop the megapixel count down lower in order to boost other things like low light performance and dynamic range. So, uh, you know, for anybody listening about where do I go when I'm getting into photography, I really can't stress enough. Think about this as this beautiful art medium and pick the right tool for the job that you want to do. I think you touched on one of the completely legitimate reasons for a lot of megapixels is gallery prints. If it's going to be Mm -hmm. a relatively large print seen up close, that's a great reason. Then you need the megapixels. But that is a that is an incredibly small percentage of yeah. photos taken, uh, and then the other legitimate reason is uh, cropping. That's that's a reason sure. I will use it for. You know, and maybe that actually that could have been a time that I'm not remembering where maybe I used all thirty or forty megapixels. Is that the subject that was important to me was in a really small part of the frame, and the lens that I had on didn't have the reach I wish it did, and so I have a really extreme crop then yes, I'm so grateful that it is still sharp as I crop way in on the image. That, that, that is a, a reason for it. And again, like one of those reasons that, uh, you know, a professional that makes their money off of this, it's worth it to have that additional image quality in, in certain cases. And let's not forget, you know, there's always that, that one other reason that not a lot of people necessarily like to talk about. But when you do get into the professional market and you're trying to make a name for yourself and you're trying to set yourself apart – um, and you're dealing with clients that may not be very familiar with the ins and outs of what's even required in digital photography. 
um, being able to say, hey, I shoot on a 50 megapixel camera or, yeah, you know, person down the street has this, but I've got the new 100 megapixel Hasselblad. You know, whether you're actually going to use it or not, that does hold sway in yeah. whether a client will go with your your work or not. That could be the thing, you know. So we have to appreciate there's also just the cachet of having the best of the best, the Ferrari, so to speak, so that when people see it, they're like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful, that's yeah. a beautiful, fast looking car. Right. They're enamored by it. And the same goes for uh, the photo industry. And there, there's some uh, yeah, there's some uh, reason for having fancy, expensive cameras like that, too, just from impressing the client and winning the business. And that's a real thing. I mean, it, it's something that sounds it is. It sounds like a joke, but it's legitimate. And I think there's been a bit of a issue with that transition of, say, things like Sony's, like very small cameras becoming very, very good. And you show up at a job that, you know, you're being paid a certain amount. The camera should look like it's worth more than that job. Like it shouldn't look like you're shooting on something that costs a few hundred dollars if you're getting paid a few thousand dollars. And um, yeah, as these smaller cameras become a similar quality to their bigger cameras, there kind of needs to be an education process for clients to realize that it still can, um, it, you can get that quality out of a smaller camera. And, and yes, I, I don't think absolutely. they necessarily realize that yet. Um, let's, I, have, I have quite a few. Oh, go ahead. Let's move along to, let's talk about prices a little bit. Um, mm, sure. We, we like, these are the different categories that you're looking at. What, do you need to spend to get into, you know, into the, let's say the best of each category? What are you looking at in prices? And I should warn everybody right away that we are Canadian. So Chris might only have <laughs> memorized Canadian prices. I'm not sure if you know uh, US yeah. dollars off the top of your head, but, uh, you know, name them if you can. I, what is it, right? Like 1.23 or something right now? I mean, oh, we'll I just look for go with, with something. <laughs> let's yeah. do Canadian dollars. Yeah. Um, so ironically enough, when you get into where we kind of started out in the one inch sensor camera, which is what I would say is the the kind of first tier for somebody who actually wants to start taking their photography to a, a higher level than just the point and shoot, they're actually quite expensive. So generally speaking, a one inch sensor camera, you know, I'll throw some names out like Panasonic ZS100 uh, or a Sony RX100 series camera. You're generally going to be looking at spending about eight hundred to a thousand dollars Canadian, and if you contrast that to an entry level SLR like a Nikon or Canon camera, or even a, a Sony mirrorless with an APS-C sensor, you're looking at those cameras being in some cases five to seven hundred dollars. So oddly enough, the the basic point and shoot camera is actually more expensive, and I think it just comes into they have awesome lenses and you're paying for that whole miniaturization and you're paying for, you know, this is a new market, a new field, whereas Nikon and Canon cameras have been around forever and they're not changing that much. So we've seen those prices come down. So do you have any kind of favorites in that range right now? Yeah, in the one inch sensor range, I really like, I mean, the Sony RX100 series, they make five of them now. They're awesome cameras, very bright lenses, beautiful image quality. Uh, and they're pocket sized. They're so compact. They won over a lot of customers. I would look at the Panasonic ZS100 because that's one of the only one inch cameras that will give you a 10 times zoom, whereas everybody else in the market is generally only giving you a three to four times zoom. So if you want a little bit more reach, the ZS100 is excellent. And then I actually have a real soft spot for the Canon G5X. Um, that's a really, really nice camera. And they have a whole bunch of cameras G7s, G5s, G9s. They have a whole series. 
But uh, the G5X, it's it's a handsome design. It's a comfortable grip. And uh, right now, a very good price point as well. Yeah, I started on the, well, that's hard to say what I started on really, but the first digital <laughs> camera I spent a lot of time with was the G2 um, that I was yeah. kind of able to rent from like a, the college uh, tech shop. I, I would kind of take those out and shoot with it. And um, I think I still have one kicking around somewhere, but I've always loved that design of the G series Canons. They're really nice cameras. Um, so, uh, the, the next price point that we're looking at now, uh, you know, we might start getting a bit of a kit, a few things that are split apart. We're looking at micro four thirds. What does it take to get started in, in that area? So if you go with an entry-level SLR, and when we say SLR, that means a single-lens reflex camera, one of these cameras that has the classic mirror and the optical viewfinder on top, uh, you know, like we've been used to for decades now. An entry-level SLR now, you can get those in the range of, of straight out $500 to $700 entry-level. So really that good price amazing. point. Yeah, you're getting 24 megapixel APS-C sensor. You're getting a, a general lens to get started. And actually, the kit lenses, although they're very light and plastic, and 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 you know the the first lens that you get, they're actually optically quite stunning. Honestly, they're really good mm-hmm. now. So you're looking at something like a Nikon D3400 or something in the Canon Rebel series like a T6i. You know, yeah, five to seven hundred dollars, unbelievably low price point. You've got full manual control. You've, you're now into the whole family of Canon or Nikon lenses, respectively. So you got lots of lenses to choose from. They're such a great deal. But you could also look at something from Sony, like their venerable A6000. That camera is just the most popular Toyota Corolla of cameras right now. It so it's, is, that's still a new camera that is a current Sony camera? They didn't... Um... Yeah, it's been out for three years and and it still was so well designed at the time. It still competes very easily with cameras released today. And you can get those anywhere from, you know, now they're sort of just under $800, but they have been as low as under $600. And, And such a great kit. You get a kit lens with those. And that is just an awesome mirrorless camera to get into. It's smaller than an SLR. It shoots faster than an SLR. Um, otherwise, look at Panasonic and Olympus, their entry-level cameras. You'll be in the sort of, again, seven to $800 range. So to get an APS-C sensor does not have to be that expensive. This is the, the tough thing I was talking about, that you can just list, you can literally list every brand's camera in that price range and say something nice about yeah, it. Yeah, how much know? time do we have? Uh, well, let's talk about the difference of buying bodies and lenses, because that's important to understand as well. Once sure. you start getting into this area, and you know, obviously more so as you start committing to a uh, certain brand, or you, you know, you're buying your lenses for the next... 10, 15, maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. How do you make those decisions early on? Like, uh, I think I think it's a really big challenge, actually, where to put your money in your first purchase. Yeah. Once you're a little further along into maybe second or third purchase, I think it becomes clear that you should really invest money in glass. And that's the wisdom everybody's probably already seen. If they've researched buying cameras, they've already heard like, oh yeah, spend the money on the glass because that's going to last and you're going to appreciate it forever. I want to make a small counterpoint or or just a, a thing to consider is that you're lacking a lot of knowledge about what will be important to you in the future when you buy that first lens and you're and you're really doing a lot of guesswork so it can be a challenge to spend $2000 on one lens responsibly mm. and understand what's going to be important to you a few years down the road so I I think that like personally I I think it's worth 
staying on the more affordable side for a little while and getting to know what a nifty 50, uh, you know, which most brands have a cheap 50 millimeter lens that lets you get really shallow depth field and is basically made out of plastic, but has pretty decent optics. And, you know, maybe spending some time with the kit lens, like they're not usually awesome, but they're fine ish. <laughs> you know, you can, you can still get good photos out of them, but I would caution people to spend more than a thousand dollars on a lens before they have a, a clear understanding of mm. how they're going to use them. But that, that's just my take on it. I, I don't know. What do you think? I, I could not agree more, Tyler. I, um, you know, as I said, the kit lenses now that are made for these cameras, they, they used to be fairly poor. Honestly, nowadays they're really excellent. They're really, really excellent. And we're kind of in an era now where resolution is so high in the sensor and our lenses are designed by computers. And I mean, you know, it's not rocket science anymore. So even affordable cheap lenses are optically actually really, really good. I, I really don't buy uh, any more into this kind of thought like you have to spend money to get good photographs. Not at all. Yeah. So I would totally say just stick with the kit lens. And what I like to tell people is stick with the kit lens, learn aperture, learn shutter speed, learn depth of field, and you'll start to see where your your envelopes are getting pushed. You know, you're going to yeah. start to see where the walls are and you're like, oh, I wish I could go more into that. Lens choice, you know, in my opinion, is totally up to what kind of photography you want to do. Don't go buy every lens so that you're prepared like a Swiss Army photographer for all situations. <laughs> yeah. you, you, you really you got to look at like, hey, um, if you really love landscape, you really love real estate. That's where you might want to get into something wider than what the kit lens offers or, oh, hey, you want to start doing sports, wildlife. Well, then, yes, you're going to need longer lenses, more telephoto lenses to do that. But you might also be the kind of person that says, I never want to take a picture of a bird or an animal. That's not me. Uh, I don't want to take pictures of ultra wide, you know, interiors. That's not me. Maybe you just want to take pictures of your kids. Maybe you just want to take mm -hmm. portraits. Uh, you can get some very simple lenses to do that. So, yeah, stick with your kit lens. See where your ranges are. And honestly, you got to learn the photography stuff before you'll really appreciate what different lenses are going to do for you anyways. Well, now we're at a point that I think I can start dropping a few recommendations here and there. Um, mm. And speaking of great affordable lenses, the, the few favorites I have in uh, Sony, the lens that is on my camera almost all the time, I mean, it's right in front of me, it's on the camera now, is the 28 millimeter F 2.0, which is about a, I think around $300 lens. Is that right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Correct me. You know these better than I do. But um, the full frame, the full frame version. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're about 600 bucks, but maybe oh. you just got a really good deal. Tyler. No, no, I didn't get a good deal. <laughs> I, 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 I forgot. But um, OK, so still it is much very less, affordable. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's very reasonably priced for a 2.0 lens that has got like metal construction. And most of all, the reason it feels so worth it to me is that compared to a Canon, like I have the older L series, uh, 35 millimeter and 24, 24 millimeter 1.4. So those were both pretty expensive. They were both Very, over $1,500, yeah. $2,000. And I find this can compete with them. I mean, it's not better. There's a little more chromatic aberration, but for the most part, it can match them. In, in most situations, oh, yeah. it's it which blows my mind. Like this is a third of the price and almost as good. 
Um, yeah. So that's that's been really impressive to me. And another one I really, really like, I strongly recommend, is the Canon 40mm 2.8 pancake lens. So mm-hmm. an obvious one is the 50. Everybody knows about the Canon 50. If you don't already, then hey, Canon 50 is great. Nikon 50 is great. The 40 millimeter pancake is extremely thin and small, 2.8 millimeters and really sharp. Like it, those mm-hmm. photos can just sit next to any photos on my L series lenses. Like it's, it's not better. If you zoom in, you can spot some differences, but it's fine. It's great. And it's 150 Canadian, I think. Right. Absolutely. And hundred percent guaranteed identical on Instagram. Absolutely. <laughs> the quality yeah. on those lenses. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I would say I would agree with that. Um, I would add on to that. I really always enjoy portraits and I like getting a fairly soft background. So I'm always been, I've always been a big fan of lenses in the sort of 75 to 85 range. Sony make an excellent 50 millimeter 1.8 for their APS-C cameras. That becomes a 75 mil on those cameras and it's an awesome portrait lens and you're looking at just under $400, very reasonable. Uh, Nikkor's 85, uh, Nikon's 85 1.8 Nikkor lens, which is a full frame lens for their cameras is again, like under $700 and uh, just beautiful, very sharp, very soft background lenses that really make people pop. And the other thing I would say now is just globally in the industry, we don't have time to go into all of them, but globally in the industry, Sigma and Tamron as companies, they were always seen as the sort of budget brand companies. What a comeback story. What a comeback story. Yeah, they really make lenses that easily compete with professional Canons and Nikons punch way above their price point. You can sometimes get them for literally half what a Nikon or Canon lens would cost with the exact same specs. And you'll probably like the Sigma better. So yeah, I would, I would definitely, you'd be doing yourself a disservice if you didn't look at them. I want to correct myself for one second here, just to make sure I'm not uh, too wrong about things. So yeah, looking in uh, American prices, um, although everybody should be going to the camera store, uh, if you're in the U S <laughs> so the, the Sony 28 millimeters four fifty U S and mm-hmm. the Canon 40 millimeters, $180 U S. So just to give you yeah. a, a rough idea. Such good price point. So that's, that's lenses, that's full frame. I want to hear your favorite cameras at, at these different ranges. So your favorite entry level, your favorite mid range and your favorite super pro high end camera. What are you Mm -hmm. into lately? Mm -hmm. Well, if we're looking at the one inch sensor cameras, I think my favorite choice is still probably, Is it my favorite choice? (laughs) I think the best choice, I think the best choice is still the Panasonic ZS100, just because getting that extra 10 times zoom uh, in a camera that that basically cannot change its lens means you're most likely not going to grow tired of that camera as quick. However, I would say my favorite camera in that entry level sort of one inch series would be the Sony RX100 series cameras because the lenses on them are so beautiful. They're sharp, and I'm honestly happy shooting 24 to 70 as my range for the rest of my life. That's all I need, so I'm lucky that way. And um, why would you point people towards the Panasonic instead? I mean, the the Sony, the RX100 is what I hear about more. It, is it the price? Because the RX100 is quite a bit more. You know, you're looking at closer to a, a full thousand. Um, oh, yeah. No, of- the, the, the Panasonic ZS100 is going to cost you a grand as well. Okay. So I think I think it just comes down to, yeah, having a 10 times zoom instead of a three times zoom for most people 
you know, you might find if you're going traveling, which is where these cameras excel, or right. you if you're occasionally more people wanna, are using those features than are more using people, the, yeah. yeah, the the kind of marginal quality improvements that you'll find on the Sony. Yes. If, you right. know, if you're driving in Banff and you want to get a good shot of a bear, uh, the ZS100 will get you started. The RX100 will get you eaten. So yeah, I would, <laughs> well I would definitely, I would definitely uh, say most people, but I like the RX100. I think the maybe another been- way to think about it is that the RX100 is more of a, like a professional's second camera, like a backup camera, whereas maybe the, the, the Panasonic might be meant for a wider audience. Maybe. I don't, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, exactly. Okay, well, let's let's bump up the price a little bit. Let's talk to talk about a basic little kit that we're going to get. We're going to have uh, one or two simple lenses and a little micro four thirds body. What would you be looking at? Well, I feel like a, I feel like a, a broken record, but if we're going into the mirrorless market and we're looking to to get a good product, the Sony A six thousand is just impossible not to recommend. I wish I had another option. That was more creative and interesting and unique, but it's just, it's such good value for the money. Okay. Well, let's um, maybe, let's make it more interesting by taking value out of it. Like I'd rather, I'd rather talk about, um, the best, <laughs> you know, what's, oh, what's, okay. what's the best we can do in this range. In the micro four thirds range, let's talk about that specifically. I'm a huge fan of the Panasonic GH5 and mm-hmm. that's what I use myself and for me, it really kind of embodies this idea of both a video camera and a cinematic camera. And I don't shoot a lot of video, but it's nice to have a camera that could handle both. It's an awesome, very powerful professional video camera. At the same time, it focuses smooth. Uh, I love the weather ceiling. Um, I like the body design and the camera's amazing for photography in terms of focusing speed, tracking ability, and uh, and I like the image quality and I like the small lenses. So I'm a big fan of Micro Four Thirds. Um, if I was going to go APS-C with, uh, with a camera, that's tough. I really like the Fuji X-T20. You know, I used that in Japan when I was traveling there and it has very classic dials. It looks like an old film camera and you can totally use it manually with just turning dials and not even looking at a screen. And that puts the fun factor back into it. And when we talk about fun, that's really kind of a priceless commodity. So Fuji X-T20, good price points, about $1,600 Canadian with a really nice lens. I love that. It's beautiful to look at and it's really nice to use. Um, what else would I say in that APS-C market? Can I ask a question about the Panasonic of that uh, for people that are primarily photographers? Uh, so I, you know, I, I look at the GH5 more because I shoot a lot of video, but for somebody mostly shooting stills, would you point them more towards the GH5 instead of the G9? Actually, nowadays, I mean, I like the GH5 myself. The G9 is very appealing. If you don't need the the videography uh, to quite the same standard, that camera does focus a little bit faster. Um, so yes, absolutely. G9 from Panasonic would be a great option. Uh, as well, Olympus have some really nice cameras. The Olympus EM5 Mark II is still one of the most beautiful cameras to look at. Cool. Okay. Um, and a- any others you want to throw into this category before we move on? Yeah. You know, I still think it has to be appreciated that if if uh, Nikon or Canon is something that you still want to look at, a Canon D8, uh, sorry, a Canon EOS 80D or the Nikon D500 especially, what these cameras embody, although they are big, large, rugged SLRs, they're excellent for wildlife, sports, and journalism. And again, it's the right tool for the right job. And if you're the kind of person that wants to shoot that kind of stuff, 
I mean, the Nikon D500 for me is just the creme de la creme of wildlife journalist cameras. It's dependable. You know you've got a huge line of lenses with Nikon. Um, they're rugged. Their, their hit rate and the focus is unbelievably tenacious. So Nikon D500, probably my favorite APS-C Pro SLR for that kind of photography. So in APS-C, what I often recommend the most is, and again, maybe this is my video bias, but is the like a6500 kind of the most, whatever the most current Sony is, which I'm sure will have a new one before this podcast is released, but (laughs) Sony's been moving that line of a6000s along pretty quickly. So although I don't love the usability of Sony's, the performance out of them is is pretty great. I don't don't own one, but everything I see come out of them is pretty nice. Yeah. And you hit it right there on the head. I mean, I don't think anybody picks up an A6500 and says, ooh, like it's so beautiful and it's so nice to hold and handle. Like nobody covets this camera. (laughs) Yeah, well put. But but that's because it is just such a purpose-built, high-performance tool. It focuses quick. The video is great. It's small. It's rugged. Yeah, I mean, I, I love those cameras. Definitely hard not to recommend. Full-frame cameras? What do, you, what do you love at the full-frame? I mean, th- this is where I've got a lot of things to say, too. But, um, you know, what's the number one for you lately? You know I hate full-frame cameras. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm just first of all, if anybody hasn't watched your <laughs> Best Gear of 2017 video, go to uh, the Camera Store TV on YouTube because yeah. it's a pretty great rundown of all of this in a lot more <laughs> drunken detail, so... Well, let me let me preface it this way. I mean, the fact is, I personally don't think I would ever really need to use a full frame camera um, just because it doesn't suit what I need or what my needs are. I like light and I like compact. However, I am still a professional camera reviewer and, and that's what we do. And yes, I'm very lucky, lucky in my job that I get to use the latest and greatest uh, every week. Right. I mean, that, that is a pretty amazing luxury and I'm, I'm very thankful for being able to do that. And so from a photographer standpoint and just from a gearhead standpoint, the Nikon D850 and the A7R Mark III are just like the greatest cameras of all time. It's like when you're into a field, whatever field that is, whatever circle, whatever world that you're interested in, when you get products in that world that are just the amalgamation of the best of everything, it's hard not to fall in love with that. So although I'd never really buy one myself or use one myself, the D850 and the A7R Mark III are achievements of amazing camera design. And I love that. We'll talk a bit about the D850 as well, because it's the one that I know the the least about. I, I just don't pay that much attention to Nikon because it's usually so similar to Canon that it's not going to offer something right. different enough for me. So I'm paying more attention to Sony. But tell me about the D850 and why somebody might choose it out of the other top of the line options. Well, I mean, you know, here's the thing, and I don't want to get into a Canon versus Nikon battle because that's not that's not the point at all. I mean, the 5D Mark IV is amazing. I love it. I think it's one of the best all-around cameras. But the fact is, like, uh, you know, when, when you're forced to look at things from a review standpoint, you got to look at things like science, numbers, and technology. And I feel like Canon, compared to Nikon, has been lagging behind in the camera design department. And SLRs are having a hard time now. People are going mirrorless for good reason. And for SLR companies to really shine, they have to innovate and they've got to make something amazing. And that's exactly what the D850 is. Nikon basically just said, look, this is the pinnacle of all of our areas of expertise in our industry. Uh, It's the pinnacle of sensor design for us. It's the pinnacle of build quality, autofocus capability. 
I mean, everything. So it's 46 megapixels. It's as fast as a Nikon D500. You could shoot sports, wildlife, weddings, journalism. You could shoot landscapes and print huge pictures. It's got amazing dynamic range and low light performance. It's basically a camera that doesn't specialize anywhere because it just does everything the best. The A7R three is one that you've been using. You, you've had a chance to touch, and it's probably the camera that I'm the most interested in right now. Yeah, and I think will be the defining camera of 2018. Like this is what will be shaping everybody's decision. Even if you don't buy one, you're going to be looking at this camera and considering For it sure. and thinking about its its impact. It's like what the 5D Mark II was at the time that it came out, or 5D Mark One even. Like I mean, it's really it. And, and it's funny because it wasn't by any to, to me, to correct me at the end of this if I'm wrong, but there weren't any huge leaps with like everything mm. they changed about it was relatively incremental. A lot of it had already happened in other Sony cameras. I mean, we can be talking about the A9 at the same time because a lot of the mm-hmm. important things apply to both of these, but it refined the the huge problems that the A7R2 had that really prevented it from being a competitive professional camera to me. I mean, honestly, in ways... It, the A7R2 felt like an accidentally professional, like professionals could <laughs> struggle through to use it sometimes if they wanted, but it was not designed for them. Uh, it just happened to have a sensor good enough that you you might want to use it sometimes. But they saw those really hard edges and polished them off in a way that turned the A7R3 into something really, really usable and really powerful. Um, am I right or what am I wrong? <laughs> Yeah, I know. You know, what's what's amazing to be about the A7R 3 and really this is kind of why Sony's doing so well right now is when the A7R 2 came out, a lot of people said, OK, the image quality is there. It's an interesting camera, but I still can't rely on this day to day to do my work and, and, and rightfully so. And so it's as if Sony just took that right to heart and said, OK, what are people upset about? It doesn't focus quick enough. The battery life is terrible. Um, you know, the image quality was great. The The camera functioned properly, but, you know, you needed better viewfinder. You needed better battery life. Uh, you needed th- th- those kind of things and much better focusing. And they just did it. They're like, here you go. There you go. You should be happy now. And we are. And, and it's not just the consumers that are looking at this camera. I think the other competitors have to look at this camera and be like, man, yeah. like yeah. this is what we have to now beat. Um, and honestly, for four grand, that's not that much money considering what you get. So the A7R 3 I, I, I can't help but compare it with the D850 because it's another example of where a manufacturer just said, look, okay, here, you're going to give you a camera and it's just going to have everything that we can do. All the best autofocus, the best sensor, low light, dynamic range, everything that's crammed it in there. And again, it's a camera that can do any kind of photography. It has no weakness. Well, my one complaint, and to me, this is a real limitation that nobody else seems to complain about, but so maybe it's just me, but is <laughs> is the, the lack of being able to shoot smaller megapixels. You know, if you're a wedding mm. shooter and you go through 10,000 frames in a day and they're all 40 megapixels, that can be a real problem. You know, like downloading that card takes twice as long. Storing it takes twice as much space. You got to have more memory cards, you know, yada, yada. But it can present real obstacles having that big of image sizes all the time in all situations. And they don't have medium raw yet. So you're absolutely right. I'm super excited about this camera, but that, that would become a practical issue if it was my primary. I am kind of, and I'm not really sure what I'd do to resolve that. And isn't that funny that just like a, a simple software change is all uh, that they yeah. would need to do to, <laughs> totally. to make it work well for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I know. Yeah. 
but uh, just, yeah, some of the other really great things about it that are just simple, but are going to be there is that, uh, what do you call it? The nipple on the back, the uh, joystick. The little autofocusing joystick is great. Yeah. And again, one of those things that what made the previous generation almost unusable, <laughs> even though it's such a generic little piece of, of control. So anyway, I mean, I could go on and on about this camera and I will, <laughs> but as well as the A9, which is more specialty. But another really important thing to notice is that the A7R3, like you said, the price is great, but it's actually even less than some of the other cameras. I From oh, last yeah. time I looked, it is a bit less than the 5D Mark IV, isn't it? It's less than a 5D Mark IV. It's less than an Icon D850. Uh, you know, what I'm kind of excited for, and I'm still holding my breath, I'm skeptical, but what I'm excited and hopeful for that will happen in 2018 is that we're going to finally see another manufacturer come out with full frame mirrorless cameras. So I'm, I, you know, I'm looking at Nikon, I'm looking at Canon because they've got to now realize like this is, this is maybe where the industry is going and we've got to start competing. I'm pretty sure that Canon's going to get there this year that they'll at least announce it this year. I'm I'm willing to bet that they will let us know what's I hope so. going to happen. But my bigger concern isn't that they'll announce it, but that they're going to miss it. You know, that they'll still be three generations off from having something that's <laughs> interesting to a professional, you know? Yeah. To be fair, Canon has been on a slump as far as, as really, you know, at the forefront of, Oh man, that's exciting. That's new. That's better than everybody else. But you know, we got to keep hoping. I, I really want Canon to pull out something exciting. And Nikon, too. They need it. Absolutely. Have you seen anything about the, the – somebody did a demonstration of the Metabones adapter on the A7R Mark III using Canon and Tamron glass and that it looks like the autofocus issues – were more or less fixed. Have you seen this? Are you aware of this? Yeah, largely resolved. I mean, the A7R3 incorporates their their hybrid autofocus and contrast detect and phase detect now. Um, it's been improved drastically as well, just as an overall system. Uh, minimal blackout time in the viewfinders. And yeah, with Metabones adapters on there, we're finding the autofocus. I still would say that native glass has a slight advantage, but you're getting eye detect autofocus, their, their patented eye autofocus, which I love on Sony's. This is a focusing system which specifically doesn't just look at the face like other manufacturers does, but actually picks up the iris itself. So you can be sure that when you get focus on somebody, it's right on that critical spot in the eye, not the nose, not the it's eyebrow. Amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And it works and it works quick. Um, and especially if you're using like thin depth of field lenses where your depth of field is so thin, it's critical to get it on the eyes. And this does it like every time. If you're telling me that it's usable, that's enough to <laughs> to mean that yeah. I could consider not selling all my Canon glass and still keep working through. That's the really big issue. I couldn't imagine switching right now because I'm oh. not about to unload all my Canon lenses and switch to Sony. So One of the smartest things that Sony did right in the beginning of their whole mirrorless program was to say, hey, we're going to help adapter manufacturers to make stuff rather than try to keep it away from them. And we're going to, as much as possible, accommodate other people's glass. And I mean, really the success story, there's Canon, but a lot of people use Canon. So it uh, it was a really smart move on their part to try to support Canon from the beginning. And uh, it's paid dividends for them in a big way. It's been funny to see Canon's glass become the de facto industry standard <laughs> as they are kind of on the way out as the, I mean, not yet, but funny? like, it's looking like it could be the end of an era just as their lens 
domination is complete you know maybe they'll just become a really high-end lens manufacturer in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah they'll just put, license put out anything. the yeah. ef mount yeah. um <laughs> and do, do you have any more full frames you want to throw in here well you know while we're on the topic of this you know i did say i hope that other manufacturers come out with a full frame mirrorless but actually there is one manufacturer we should talk about that has been making full frame mirrorless for a long time and that is Leica because of the design of their mm, rangefinder yeah, cameras. They, they never had uh, they never had mirrors in the first place. You know, for those that don't know, Leica is a prestigious German manufacturer. Their cameras used to be hand milled, handmade, hand machined. It's uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't buy one. Um, number one being that they're grossly overpriced. No, let's not I talk mean, about that. Let's not talk about the reasons not to. Tell me the reasons I want to. <laughs> they're grossly overpriced and they're using a very old style way of focusing the rangefinder, which is essentially a difficult manual focus situation. The reasons to buy them are because they are difficult and because they are prestigious. It's a totally different experience when shooting. And that's the only way I can justify the intense cost of these cameras you're getting into being able to take photography with as little in between you and the photograph as possible. It's pure, it's simple, it's in your mind photography. You gotta pre-visualize it, you gotta know your stuff. But when you do, you find that everything's instinctual and it's fun. And I'm not a Leica shooter. I'm not gonna profess to love Leicas. In fact, I often complain about them. However, the Leica M10, their latest full-frame mirrorless camera, I have fallen in love with this camera. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a thinner body. It feels like a classic Leica. And whenever I take one out and shoot it, even though I would never buy one in a thousand years because I'm broke, it is so much fun to shoot that way. And sometimes you just want to get into a camera where you don't care about dynamic range and you don't care about autofocusing points and you don't care about, you know, numbers. You just go have fun and shoot. And that's there's a lot to be said for that. I've always found it easier to dismiss the latest Leica than I do now with the M10. The M10 is the best argument for a Leica that they've had in a long time. You know, I think there was uh, kind of bigger um, obstacles to buying one. Like there's sure. bigger compromises. You're like, I'm spending too much to be making these compromises. And it feels oh, yeah. like they are clearing a lot of those away. Like basically getting back to where they were at the peak of their film days where Mm-hmm. You know the challenges in using that type of system, but you're not sacrificing design or qual or image quality for any of it. Like you, you're really getting something great. And I'll, I'll make another argument for why Leicas can be worth that investment. I, I mean, I don't know, if worth it, but like uh, that you can feel justified in <laughs> wanting one and eventually maybe <laughs> buying one is uh, the the lenses really are incredible. Um, I mean, I've done some direct comparisons between the, uh, the, the 1.0, is that the Noctilux? Yeah, the Noctilux. So yeah, I had the 1.0 next to the Canon 1.2 L series. So this is like a roughly a, you know, a $10,000 lens compared to a $2,000 lens, something like that. Yeah. And the Leica really blew the Canon out of the water. 1.0 compared to 1.2, it was much it's not that it was sharper, but the fall off from the sharpness was nice. <laughs> like it looked, yes. <laughs> it just looked so much better. And you don't realize what you're missing when you're just looking at the Canon. You kind of don't know what the difference could be until you see them next to each other. And these are really exceptional lenses and they're really yeah. expensive lenses, but 
it is different. Um, they are building for a, a different standard of quality, and it's it's yeah. it is remarkable. You know, we have to remember that photography, even though it's a digital technology now, and it's it is a technologically based art form. It is still an art form, and sometimes you got to get away from things like lines of resolution per millimeter and chromatic aberration and all of these measurable things, and start appreciating that these are still artist tools. You know, I mean. Uh, I don't think people ask painters, you know, like what brand of brush do you, you know, is really important or, you know, sable or nylon or whatever, because all these people have these different characters with these different brushes. There's there's a reason you buy it, which is almost intangible. And photography is no different. And when you, when you look at Leica lenses, there's a warmth and a character and just a feel, which is intangible and which is hard to reproduce or maybe even impossible to reproduce from other companies. So, you know, yeah, sometimes you just got to get away from the technology and go off of character and feel. And I think for me, that's a big part of what you're getting. As a bonus, let's just spend a few seconds on medium format cameras, which uh, if we're talking to a general audience, you're probably not shopping for one today. But, um, (laughs) you know, once if you had to spend the next year shooting on a medium format camera, we have a, a weird amount of selection from them lately. Everybody's been releasing them. What would you What would you pick up? What would you use all the time? What do you like? Ooh, that's a tough one. You know, medium format has changed. We've now seen the mirrorless market in medium format. So the Fuji GFX just came out. The Hasselblad X1D just came out. Um, and that represents a very interesting change in technology. Um, yeah, you know, funny, medium format is about the most opposite camera that I would ever personally use myself. I feel that they're definitely made for studio work and commercial work, uh, landscape to some extent, but I have shot the X1D quite a bit. I've shot the Fuji GFX quite a bit. If I was still going to buy a a medium format camera myself, oh man, I'm going to go in a weird direction here, Tyler. I'm still going to stick with the Pentax 645Z. Oh yeah, Um, that's not, that's not too weird to me. I, (laughs) I really love that camera. I mean, uh, I mean, my choices were going to be like, you know, that and, and I, I like the Hasselblad X1D, I think maybe sure. a little bit more than you do. Uh, I think much the, more the than limi- I do. Yeah. The limitation of it really, if I was think, imagining buying it is the lens selection, you know, the, the, the camera is insanely beautiful. It has some bugs in it for sure. Mm-hmm. But in the end, what would get me is the lack of really fast lenses on it. The, yeah, the Pentax 645 ZZ is, um, I loved shooting with that camera it's so easy to use. Um, it felt yeah. like a 35 in many ways. And that's, that's the thing again, you know, we're talking about these intangible things. I mean, they all pretty much have the exact same sensor and, and roughly the same image quality, but, uh, the Pentax six or five Z, you just, you pick it up and it felt good. And I remember getting that thing soaking wet and not worrying about it at all. It was just a reliable, rugged, fun tool to use. The Fuji GFX is a fantastic system, but it's a system that you just don't fall in love with. It doesn't, mm-hmm. you don't covet it. I'm going to use that word again. Right. And, and I, you know, ideally, if you can have a camera that does what you need to do day in, day out, and you love and covet that camera, that's a pretty magical experience. And that, I think that's what I can't get past with the Hasselblad, uh, the X1D, is that covetability. It just, yeah. it is so, when you're holding it, it feels so desirable that oh, it's so good. I'm kind of able to look past some of the usability flaws, but I, I do understand that they're there as well. That's that's true love right there, Tyler. Yeah. That's true yeah, love. It really is. So Chris, <laughs> I, I really appreciate this. We've gone over so much and I hope at this point, whoever is listening out there has a bit more understanding of what they might 
be uh, purchasing in their future. And if you don't, you should write to either me on Twitter, and I'm at Stallman, or to Chris. Uh, Chris, I forget your Twitter handle. No, yeah, you can go either Instagram or Twitter. It's just at TCSTV Chris. And that stands for The Camera Store TV, and you should especially hit them up on YouTube. Watch our YouTube. Which you probably already have, because they uh, they come <laughs> up in all the search results when you look for virtually any camera review. And yeah, honestly, Chris, thank you so much. This has been great. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast, Tyler. Anytime. <laughs>